0: Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojula. This week, a failed MAGA candidate is arrested in New Mexico, accused of hiring a hitman and targeting some of his political rivals. The White House calling the accusations against Peña horrifying and shocking, adding, quote, the nation rejects violence as a political tool. Also, election deniers and some of the most extreme Republicans have secured seats on the powerful House Government Oversight Committee. Plus, the evangelical right is souring on Donald Trump They seem to have found an alternate candidate for 2024. We'll also have a legislative update and how city council meetings can go south.
1: Open public meetings. I don't mention her name. Stop the clock. Hold on for one sec, sir. So you've been asked to be removed. He's been told to deviate and be disruptive. So you are excused, sir. Please security escort him out. Yes, sir. Okay. Have a night, sir.
0: All of that coming up this hour. But first, another significant change at Seattle City Hall. A fourth member of the Seattle City Council has decided not to run for re-election and arguably is the most controversial member of the City Council. Shama Sawant announced this week that she is done. Joining me now is Como TV's senior reporter, Chris Daniels. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, first off, welcome to the Como family. It's great to be here. And so you had a chance to interview Shama Sawant. What was the reasoning behind her decision?
2: I don't think we got a straight answer on that. Uh, I think I asked the same question four different ways at her announcement that, that really was about this national organization that, that she's launching for workers' rights and, and buried within that big announcement. Oh, by the way, she's not running for re-election. Uh, she wouldn't talk about, frankly, the timing behind all of this, why she's making the decision now. I asked the question about the recall in 2021. She avoided that and, and tried to turn the question. Question around, but I, I think if you look around the landscape and, and how these announcements are normally made, it, they're normally made in the January before a, a big civic election, and, and we have a primary later on this year and a general election, uh, obviously, or an election. Uh, in in this year. So uh, we've seen the council members starting to position themselves, whether they're going to run for re-election or not. This is kind of the time to do it. And, and she, I, I think, wanted to bury that below this uh, bigger announcement that, that she's <laughs> launching a national organization.
0: She's the fourth out of seven members that are up for re-election this year. So one more, and you've got a majority change in the council. That's really going to shake things up at City Hall.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the people that we're really waiting on, we're waiting on official work Heard, frankly, from Deborah Juarez, that the council president, she hasn't said anything publicly, with the exception of making an offhand comment in a city council meeting. Uh, but, but really, we're we're waiting on Morales uh, in South Seattle and Dan Strauss in uh, Ballard. Basically, that that. District of Seattle, uh, those are the two that haven't really fully declared what they're going to do. Andrew Lewis says he, uh, the downtown representative, that he will run for reelection. Uh, it, so it, it will be interesting. We already know a Majority uh, most likely will not be running uh, that are up those seven seats, uh, and that's why we come back to Swant here with the idea mm-hmm. that uh, she is the has been for now a decade the the straw that stirs the drink in Seattle. She is the <laughs> one that I think you could make the case outside of the city of Seattle. She's the only elected official that people really know or or have seen on TV. And and because she has tried to take uh, her role on a, a larger scale, I think people outside the city of Seattle know it. And, and it comes back to uh, issues that are, are really bigger than the city of Seattle, like police recruiting. How do you mm-hmm. recruit people to a city uh, where the climate perhaps is not what it is in other yeah. cities? And that traces back to Councilmember Sawant and the makeup of the council.
0: And not a lot of her proposals really got through or at least some of her more extreme proposals but what she was effective at doing was kind of pushing that Overton window getting the city council to shift further and further to the left over those 10 years that she's been in office it's hard to imagine that even in that district 3 Capitol Hill that is so left-leaning that you're going to find her replacement to be any further left than she was.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, you can make the argument, uh, I think, watching her career now play out over the course of a decade. She was far more effective in the first half of her time in office than she was in the second half, meaning uh, when you talk about renters' rights and you talk about specifically $15 out or minimum wage, she needs to be credited with the idea that she was the one who started that discussion mm-hmm. in the city of mm-hmm. Seattle. She, she got the state on board. She got county uh, leaders on board. I mean, she really did have a movement there, but what you saw here, uh, and, and you can also base this on just the elections uh, that she was involved in. She she likes to point out that she won four elections. The second time around, after she was elected, she won going away. Third time around, it was a street fight, and, and the recall was a street mm-hmm. fight, that she only won by 300 votes, and I think that speaks to the, the kind of polarizing figure that she did become, and, and she did become an isolated figure on that mm-hmm. Seattle City Council. There were a lot of 8-to-1 votes, uh, where she would just vote no because she she wanted to make a statement, a, a long you know, statement in front of the council about the issues that, that she felt were important that weren't even really germane to the discussion. And she would attack her fellow council members. And you know, when you're talking about putting together legislation and uh, being a team and, and trying to fight for the common good, uh, that's where you get isolated. And I think that's why you saw her effectiveness start to wane here in the last few years and perhaps why she is not running.
0: You talk about the city council and the, a lot of those eight to one votes but on a lot of issues a lot of people outside of Seattle that don't cover things as closely as we do kind of see the city council as groupthink. they're they're all of one mind they're the ones running the show not the mayor there is some Truth to that, though, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I mean, you do have to build a consensus. I mean, we've seen legislation; it happened uh, more often than uh, I think we've seen here in the first year of Bruce Harrell, but uh, with with count, with Jenny Durkin as mayor, where there were some veto overrides, uh, they weren't getting along. they weren't building consensus, and and at the same time, we saw that the polarization on a on a really a national level, the the extreme opposite here on a local level, uh, to the left, uh, a, a lot of the the Tactics that that the former president has been accused of, we saw from Sawant's mm-hmm. camp. It was just a complete polarization and difference in in styles and, and politics. You know the the marching to people's homes, the 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 bringing people into city hall. I mean that's what she had the recall over. Remember, yeah. I mean that it was those allegations, the ethics violations. Um, and, and you you do get the sense in this city, uh, from at least where I sit objectively, that the the tone has shifted, the temperature. Has shifted especially in the last couple of years and and that perhaps also feeds into the idea of the timing on why now for Swans.
0: so we have a new mayor in Bruce Harrell we're gonna have a a significant number of new members of the Seattle City Council starting next year after they're sworn in so are we expecting things to as you say kind of cool off or or are we expecting City Hall to be a little bit more effective rather than one branch at war with another
2: going into uh, what will be a, uh, a City Council election with just all sorts of candidates when we're talking about seven seats the economy is going to be front and center on on what you do in certain parts of this city because the the issues that really are the biggest issues in this state are also the biggest issues in Seattle we're talking about the economy homelessness and housing and uh, who can make an effective pitch to to come up with creative solutions Uh, because it it also when you when you come back to public safety and policing Mm -hmm that is going to be an issue for andrew lewis um when he runs as he's he's already declared for re-election he was one of the council members who originally supported cutting funding to the police what has largely be, been called defund the police he supported it he's backtracked from that he's got a downtown constituency that's concerned about public safety that is going to be an issue for him as he runs it'll also be an issue for tammy morales and dan strauss if they decide to run because that is uh, as you know uh, a city is is short-staffed in the police oh, yeah. department and and how they figured that out going forward i think is going to be a campaign issue
0: going back to sawant uh, the one thing that really impressed me aside from her politics about her is she had this incredible ground game in getting out the vote canvassing going from door to door to door no other candidate could really compete with that
2: no and i think she she can hang her hat and and her supporters can on on that recall it shows that recall uh, covering it showed to me the importance of street level politics retail politics she has been very good at that over the last decade and and, and in particular with that recall all the polling was suggesting she was going to lose going away in district 3 which includes Capitol Hill, Madrona, Leschi, Madison Park, Central District. Uh, it, she was going to lose that district and the early vote returns showed that she was the, the the vote levels the the ballot returns were extremely low on Capitol Hill in a 10 block area and she and her supporters decided hey let's go let's let's get out the people to vote and let's start printing out ballots on corners and, and get people signed up and putting their ballots in. And on the outside, a lot of people thought, well, what they're doing is illegal. Mm-hmm. No, it turns out it was a loophole that is a completely legal loophole mm-hmm. that, that people just didn't understand. To, to print out ballots at home, mail them in, that was all done for veterans. And and they decided, hey, we need to get people to vote in this, in this one particular area and... And it was the difference in the election. She really I mean, knew how to play the game that, and play the system. That was what won the election by 300 votes. There were a couple thousand ballots there that were printed out. That won that recall for her she avoided the recall because of that issue because she had a great ground game in the city of seattle she does deserve some credit for that and other candidates other politicians in this city will probably learn from that from her long term on how to carry out these elections because of what they've seen with shama swan
0: so as we kind of wrap things up as we see her kind of stepping aside and into this new role that she's working on nationally is there anyone that comes to mind from District 3 that you think might step forward and run for this seat?
2: Well, we had a chance to talk this week to Joy Hollingsworth, whose grandmother marched with Martin Luther King. She announced on Martin Luther King Day for that reason. Uh, she has been a, a cannabis farmer, small business owner. Uh, she ha- is a third-generation resident of the Central District. She's got some good people behind her already, helping her with her campaign. She's the the name so far that... that uh, I think you can make the argument is the biggest name to declare in that race, and she wants to get started early for fundraising purposes, democracy vouchers and that kind of thing. That seems to be the name so far, but it is early, and uh, we're going to hear a lot of candidates come to the surface here in the next uh, couple of months. Yeah,
0: filing week is in May, so it's going to come pretty quick. Chris Daniels, senior reporter for Como TV, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Jeff. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, the religious right turns its back on Donald Trump, when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poe Well, the GOP has long been the party of the Christian right, and oddly enough, Donald Trump, the former president, Got a lot of support from the Christian right, but now they seem to be breaking from him with an eye towards Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. So what exactly is going on here? Joining me now is Hannah Knowles. She is a reporter for The Washington Post who has been writing about this. And it seems that there are some cracks in former President Donald Trump's Christian armor there.
3: Yeah, and we really saw that this past week um, when his uh, former Vice President Mike Pence he had held an event um, with a prominent pastor, a longtime evangelical ally of Trump, Robert Jeffress. And, you know, Pence is weighing a 2024 run and he's on this tour of mega churches and really trying to speak to um, this Christian right community that he helped kind of bring on to the bring on board with Trump when people were skeptical of him. And so I think we see a lot of people you know, competing for that group now and and they know that they'll have options in twenty twenty four and they're interested to hear them out.
0: It always seemed kind of odd to me that President Trump, who is by all outward appearances, not very religious at all, had this deep loyalty from the christian right
3: yeah no it was um it was really striking the disconnect too in twenty sixteen between um you know some evangelical leaders who who were really um divided over his his candidacy and felt like in some cases he was immoral or um you know they didn't trust him on social issues and the divide between that and uh, evangelical voters um specifically right leaning and, and especially white evangelicals because they really um, came out very strongly for Trump and liked what he was talking about. Um, so I think you saw a little bit of um, kind of the leadership being led a bit by um, the voters, um, but th- but there were a few um, you know prominent um, pastors and names that came out for Trump.
0: You mentioned Mike Pence. Obviously, that was a-, a pretty smart political move on Donald Trump in 2016 to pick him as the running mate.
3: Yeah, and you saw, for example, um, some anti-abortion groups who had said You know, during the primary, please pick anyone but Trump um, as the GOP nominee. Um, They ended up coming around to the ticket and they said at the time, you know, part of this is because, um, you know, we we trust Pence on this issue and we know he has um, deep connections in this community. Um, But over time, um, you know, as I think you know, evangelical leaders, Catholic leaders saw what Trump was able to accomplish for them in office by reshaping the Supreme Court. They really became pretty enamored of the administration. Um, But now, uh, you you know, people are doubting if Trump can win again. Um, You know, Governor DeSantis is looking pretty good to a lot of GOP voters. And there's, you know, there could be more than a dozen people um, throwing their hat in the ring. So there's just more people to choose from now.
0: You mentioned the Supreme Court, obviously Roe v. Wade and the overturning of that with the Dobbs decision pretty big for the Christian right. Uh, But one of the things that the Christian right has been able to really kind of build their base around, and certainly Donald Trump spoke to, was those social issues, and how is he losing support there, because that's really what his candidacy was all about?
3: Yeah, so on the one hand, um, you know, this issue that um, helped him win a lot of um, religious support, abortion, Trump has sort of been, you know, he's not on board with um, calls for, um, you know, very expansive bans. Um, he suggested that um, people in the GOP who advocated for those kind of bans ended up hurting the party in the midterms. Of course, this is at the same time as people are blaming Trump um, for what happened in the midterms. And so so some um, anti-abortion advocates see this as Trump kind of deflecting blame. And I talked to one the other day who said we think he's sort of been taking talking points from the swamp, which is you know, Trump's term that he uses for the political establishment and political consultants and stuff. So, so that's one issue where, you know, not everyone's happy with him right now on the religious right. And then at the same time, you have um, Governor DeSantis in Florida, and he has really um, tackled social issues, divisive social issues in a way that excites evangelical leaders and and other conservative Christians. Um, He talks a lot about teachings on LGBTQ issues in schools, um, transgender issues. And so, um, you know, these are things that they are very interested in in seeing candidates focus on.
0: And and speaking of, of Ron DeSantis, a lot of people have described him as Donald Trump, but smart. Certainly, like you say, he's playing into these social issues. But one thing that both he and the former president tend to do is they like to pick fights.
3: Yes, definitely. And so I I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons that, you know, DeSantis has emerged as one of the most formidable potential challengers to Trump in 2024, because, you know, the the same people that liked Trump for being a fighter, even if they didn't, you know, like how he conducted himself all the time, they can now look to DeSantis as this guy who has kind of the same, you know, I'm a fighter, combative vibe, um, but he's. You know, he's more polished and he doesn't have the same baggage for a lot of people.
0: What other contenders are there for the GOP primary that some of the evangelical right may be looking at?
3: I think, um, you know, a lot of people really respect, um, of course, I mentioned Pence. Um, because of just how central he's made his Christian faith to his political identity. People are interested in Mike Pompeo, who was the secretary of state um, in the Trump administration, and he talks a lot about faith as well. It's a very long list. Um, You know, Nikki Haley, another former Trump alum, could get in there. Um, I think that people are really waiting to see what happens. They want to see who ends up getting in because it
4: could be a lot. So
0: with Roe dead when that Dobbs decision and, and now that issue going state to state, what national issues are important for the Christian right?
3: Um, I think abortion is still important, and you see anti-abortion groups saying this isn't over. We want to see 2024 candidates who really have a plan for action um, on the federal level, even though that's more um controversial, especially in a, a general election. They are also really interested in other um, you know, social issues. Some people think of them as culture war issues over um, you know, how schools are teaching about race and gender identity and, and sexual orientation and all that. And, and and in general, I think um, you know, conservative Christian voters are really interested in, you know, this kind of crusade against what what DeSantis and others call wokeness in society. Um And they have this sense that their um, religious values are under kind of secular liberal attack and they want to see people pushing back on that.
0: All right. Anna Knowles, correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We have to take another quick break. But coming up next, the use of political violence. A failed candidate allegedly hires a hitman to target his opponents when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Kim Shepard.
5: Well, it sounds like the plot of a made-for-TV movie. A man loses his race for public office, so he turns to violence hiring a hitman to take out the competition. But this is all too real for those who were targeted by the plot. ABC's Alex Stone is joining us now on the Northwest Newsline. And it's just shocking to believe that this all happened over a seat in the state house in New Mexico.
1: Yeah, you know, I, the, the moment came yesterday where police came out and made the announcement and jaws dropped all over that we had known. And, and the police department had been investigating for over a month. All of these shootings around the Albuquerque area and generally right around the the city. And they knew that they were elected leaders in New Mexico, um, state reps and county commissioners who were being shot at. But they didn't know why or really what was going on in the common denominator was that they were all Democrats. So there was some thought that this was probably related to politics in some way. But who was doing it? uh, You know, who had been radicalized to the point of carrying something like this out? And that, the thinking was, well, you know, probably had something to do with it, but not where it actually went. So the big announcement last night: thirty-nine-year-old failed Republican candidate who had lost a state house seat in the midterms was the one who uh, they took into custody. Police saying this: the
4: Albuquerque Police Department SWAT team uh, took Solomon Pena into custody uh, in reference to these shootings, and he uh, it is believed that he is uh, the mastermind that was uh, behind this and that was organizing this.
1: Yeah, police saying Solomon Pena, angry over his election loss, denying he actually lost, that he had been going to the homes of political leaders before the shootings uh, with documents claiming that he had won, wanting them to look at the documents. He is a, by all accounts, diehard supporter of President Trump, had made it well known in pictures that police were showing last night, uh, wearing Make America Great Again gear, standing in front of Trump flags. And the election made him angry, according to police. And police say that. Pena hired hitmen, four men, to go out and do drive-by shootings at the homes of these Democratic political leaders uh, around Albuquerque. And uh, the, the commander in charge of the case saying...
2: After the election in November, Solomon Pena reached out and contracted someone uh, for an amount of cash money to commit at least two of these shootings. The addresses of these shootings were communicated over phone. Within hours in one case, the shooting took place at the lawmaker's home.
1: And in one of the cases, bullets went through the bedroom of a lawmaker's 10-year-old daughter's bedroom. She was not hit. She was asleep in that room. And so there were so many of these that were close calls. Nobody was injured. This all broke him when a car was pulled over that was registered to Pena. Pena was not in it. It turned out that that car had just come from the last shooting. It had the guns used in the, the shootings in the car drugs fentanyl was in the the car as well that led them to pain you the car was registered to him yeah they, that was pulled over by a deputy the deputy let albuquerque police know then they used police tactics of cell phone records and whatnot to figure all of this out and the mayor in albuquerque said, this type of radicalism is a threat to our nation and it has
4: made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I know here we are going to push back and we will not allow this to cross the threshold.
1: So a SWAT team moved in yesterday, arrested Pena. Police believe the shooters may not have even known who they were targeting or why. They were paid to go and do it and they went and, and did it. He's facing now a long list of charges and Pena spent seven years in prison for burglary a few years ago. So Uh, would seem uh, that being in trouble with the law is not something totally foreign to him. Um, In fact, that there was a court case where his opponent in the midterms wanted him disqualified to run because he was a felon. The the courts ruled in Pena's favor and allowed him to continue to run. But all of this coming into play now in this case.
5: Yeah, you know, the, the pieces are really starting to fall into place now that you mentioned his criminal history, because I was really curious about that, about how he got connected with the felons that he's accused of working with.
1: Yeah, and we don't know how they actually made that connection. We can assume that that it was through his time in prison, but it could have been any number of ways. And, and police don't seem to have identified that yet either. Um, but they knew these guys that they have one confidential informant. We don't know which one it is. Um, the the one who they pulled over had a warrant out for his arrest. So they were able to do a lot more searching and, and digging into his background and what he had in the car. Um, and in that car, again, it went back to Pena. And that was kind of the the big moment where they said, you know, this guy lost a race and he had been showing up to the homes of the the Democratic leaders, pushing paperwork on them to try to show that he won. And then they figured it all out, text messages that that make it very clear that they were able to get with search warrants that he was giving the addresses, giving the weapons, telling these guys allegedly what to do. Um and they say that they've got it all to show a court.
5: And as the mayor of Albuquerque said, this is part of a larger trend that some government nonprofit watchdogs also have been warning about when it comes to the escalation of violence, political violence in this country.
1: Absolutely. But you know, the the concern has been mainly about lone wolves that, that somebody would be following a political leader and go sure. out and do it. This is the that politician who allegedly went out and did it on his own or hired people to do it. They do believe in the last one that he rode along and actually was there and at least pulled the trigger once. So, you know, it's almost, according to police, a ride-along that he did and wanted the thrill of being there to to see it carried out, but all the other ones hiring allegedly people to do it.
5: So how many shootings are involved? Do they think there are any more that they don't even know about yet?
1: Yeah, so they know of four, um, two county commissioners, two state reps, but they believe that others may be linked. There had been other shootings at offices of Democratic leaders around Albuquerque, some other homes as well. So now they've got to try to put all that together and figure out, did he target more than just the four? They only know about the four, but the four alone will keep him in prison for a very long time based on the charges that they filed. Uh, but there, there may be more out there.
5: Sure. What are other members of his party saying and people who donated to his campaign?
1: You know, I, we haven't seen a lot from uh, others in the, the Albuquerque area or outside of Albuquerque. There is shock, uh, I think, on both sides that that this is what allegedly was carried out, that, that it got to the point of political violence. Today is the first day of the legislative session in New Mexico. So police were saying that they felt like this was uh, extra special in a way, that last night this announcement was made and that Democratic leaders had been worried in New Mexico, knowing that their counterparts had been targeted of what was going on. And the day that at least the night before all of it uh, they got going again, that they were able to say that – Um, that they had the suspect in custody, and that those uh, uh, Democratic politicians, that they were safe.
5: Yeah, it makes me wonder whether or not those legislators are going to immediately try to get to work on some kind of state statute to keep felons from running for office in the future, since they seem to have a concern about that from the get-go with Pena.
1: Yeah, well, there is a law in New Mexico, and that's where his opponent went after him on it, and the courts ruled that that law was unconstitutional, so they might be able to, to work up something else, but the court said that uh, that the the law in New Mexico cannot bar somebody who is a felon from running for office. And then he was allowed to continue.
5: Interesting. So where does the investigation go from here? Do they think that there could still be more crimes out there they need to identify?
1: They do. And they're, they're working on that right now. They say the investigation is not over yet that they only in the last couple of days were led to Pena and they got the search warrants and did all the investigative work that now they've got to do more. They're still putting their case together. Are there other crimes that are out there? Did he do anything allegedly else that they've got to to figure out and link to him? They're working on all of that right now.
5: ABC's Alex Stone on the Northwest Newsline.
1: That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard.
0: We have to take another quick break, but when we come back investigating the investigators, some of the most extreme Republicans and election deniers Seek to control the House Government Oversight Committee when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. Look, once again, here's Kim Shepard.
5: Handing the keys of oversight to the most extreme MAGA members of the Republican caucus. That's how the White House is describing the seating of some election deniers on the House Oversight Committee. ABC's Justin Finch is on the Northwest Newsline. And this isn't the first time there have been some controversial choices for congressional committees. Is this any different?
4: This might be different only because we're seeing the White House really kind of strike a tone before this committee gets to the real work uh, that it's set out to do. We know they already have framed part of their work uh, in this Congress will be around the Biden administration, also the president's son, Hunter Biden. So when you think about this statement and frame it within the context, we are being set up for uh, a very combative two years. Um, As you mentioned, the White House, without naming names here, uh, says that Republicans are handing off the keys of oversight to the most extreme MAGA members. You might be asking, without naming the names here, who are they talking about? Well, this does come after the announcements of a few bold-faced House Republicans. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Paul Gosar of Texas, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, all of them now on the House Oversight Committee. We saw Taylor Greene and Gosar become stripped of their seats in the last Congress for making extremist comments, many centered around January 6th. So the White House now saying, explain yourselves, how can you put these people on your committee and talk about transparency when some did not comply with the January 6th select committee.
5: Have we heard a response from Republican leaders yet? Uh, Not as of right now. As you might imagine,
4: uh, this has been just the the latest fire here on Washington's Capitol Hill with the addition of not only the records investigation going on right now, which the House Oversight Committee is all over, and of course, that looming debt ceiling as well. All these things kind of cooking together right now. And also among those new appointees, George Santos, the embattled New York congressman, many saying he should not hold office at all. Well, he is now on the Small Business Committee and the House Science, Space and Technology Committee.
5: And on a side note, talking about Santos, what is this about one of his staff members possibly pretending to be a staffer for Kevin McCarthy?
4: And uh, The House speaker made allusion to that yesterday and said that was quickly handled. Uh, You know, it's really interesting seeing how they are having to negotiate the george santos of it all we know there are probes now at the federal and state level trying to get into who is george santos really where's his money coming from and how did he get this far to be elected to congress These are questions being asked more loudly now because there are people who are saying they raised the alarm very early into this. We had one man coming forward saying that he used to be a roommate of George Santos and never knew him by this name. It kind of all comes down to to this very kind of like uh, fractious deal that Kevin McCarthy struck to be speaker. He had to be able to sway many different points of view within his own party And now they have that that motion to vacate, which can be called by one member at any time. So every day, Kevin McCarthy is literally stepping on thin ice in Capitol Hill as we stare down things like these committee assignments from the White House, the debt ceiling and other things to come, this is someone who could very easily lose his speakership. So the support of a George Santos at this point is something he has to hold with value.
5: ABC's Justin Finch on the Northwest Newsline.
0: And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. We have to take another quick break. But when we come back, the endless entertainment that is the public comment period at city council meetings.
1: Damn Nazi, Gestapo, democracy, fascist. When the Northwest Politicast
0: continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. A quick legislative update. This past week in Olympia, Democratic state lawmakers proposed a wealth tax on the state's richest individuals. The bill is being sponsored by Senator Noel Frame of Seattle.
5: We are going to fund our future by enacting a narrowly tailored property tax on extreme wealth derived from the ownership of stocks, bonds and other financial assets.
0: Now, Democrats say it would only affect about 700 Washington residents, levying a 1% tax on all assets, though the first two hundred and fifty million dollars would be exempt. But Republicans say Democrats won't stop there. Representative Drew Stokesbury
1: of Auburn. Folks are rightly concerned that if a wealth tax is introduced, even if it doesn't apply to them today, uh, it could apply to them tomorrow or the next day.
0: Frame says she has the support of two-thirds of Democrats, but she'll need more than that to get the wealth tax passed. Lawmakers are also considering House Bill 1195, which would ban the open carrying of firearms in parks and hospitals. Democratic State Representative Tana Sen is the prime sponsor of that bill.
5: Children being at the ball field, playing coaches, uh, teaching soccer, games going on, and meanwhile a, a gun rally on the field immediately adjacent. Uh, This is not what we want for our community. This is not good for our children.
0: But Republican State Representative Jim Walsh disagrees. In my community, people do want to open carry, particularly in public parks. Uh, There's a tradition in at least one park, state park in my district, of uh, people Target practicing
1: shooting in the, in the state park.
0: Now it's unclear if the bill has enough support to pass. Finally this week, sometimes public hearings at city halls and school board meetings can get out of hand. There is a disturbing lack of benches in Ramsey Park. I want to sit
3: more. I found a sandwich in one of your parks and I want to know why it
5: didn't have mayonnaise. Why don't you have hand dryers in the park bathrooms? They're so much more sanitary than paper towels.
0: Now, those scripted comments were made on the TV show Parks and Recreation, but it's not that far from reality. In some cases, though, shouting is about something far more disturbing than hand dryers and park bathrooms. Karin Bruillard has taken a closer look for The Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Seis. Karin, you've been examining some of these meetings. Uh, What's happening to our public discourse? What have you noticed?
6: I think we've all read a lot in the past few years about public meetings getting a little wilder, often over things like masks in response to the coronavirus pandemic. More recently at school boards, there's been a lot of consternation, you might say, about books in libraries, books and curriculum, curriculum changes, programs like critical race theory or or other programs on diversity and equity. Um, And there's just been an increasing interest in local politics, which all the officials I talk to Generally thought of as a good thing, but what's happened is that some of the passion over these topics that are really socially divisive um, have bled into the public comment portion of these meetings and made them sometimes much more unruly than they used to be.
0: And public is the key thing here. They're public meetings run by public employees, and sometimes reporters like you or or me. When I was recovering city hall meetings are bored to tears by the six hours they have to talk about horseshoe pits, which is a true story that I'll save
1: for another time. But, but how are they, these officials trying to rein in what can sometimes turn into a circus?
6: You know, most places have a public comment policy, sort of how they, you know, that just dictates how do they call on people, how long do people have to speak, what topics, you know, might they be able to speak on. In some cases, it's agenda items only. In some cases, it's come and talk about whatever you wish. Uh, And in some cases, it's, you know, only residents of the district, school district, maybe. And in other cases, it's anyone who wants to come. And as officials running these meetings sort of struggle to keep them under control, they're often now sort of tinkering around the edges of those. Um, And in some cases, Going a little farther than that by um, you know suspending public comment, usually temporarily, sometimes for a few months, as they sort of think, try to figure out how to how to tame these meetings. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, shortening the amount of time people had to speak, um, limiting the number of times people can speak per meeting, and in some cases even you know taking meetings back to being virtual, like they were during sort of the height of the pandemic, just to kind of keep people out of the room and keep people from fighting with each other or shouting during the meeting
0: and whether or not these restrictions work in the short term are they legal that's where we get into a little bit more gray area and i'll leave that to our listeners to read in your latest online at washingtonpost.com Carn brulyard with us and that's northwest news radio's taylor van Sice, and that will do it for this episode of the northwest politicast if you like the show please leave a rating and a review in apple podcasts for more be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pojola. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.